0: Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is the Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Joined by historian, author, and podcaster Tristan Hughes. When I was in the early stages of creating the concept for The Comfortable Spot, I always had Tristan on my list as a guest. Tristan's podcast, The Ancients, is an amazing series that not only covers vast swathes of early history, but also perfectly manages to do this without ever taking the listener for granted, as it explores subjects in an easy to follow format. Tristan is crucial in the series because of his bounds of enthusiasm, and the choice of guests is astounding. Recently, Tristan has published a book, The Perdiccas Years 323-320 BC, which covers the fallout from the sudden death of Alexander the Great, and we chat about the story behind this book, as well as a number of great topics including a review of some of Hollywood's attempts at depicting ancient history. I knew that this was going to be a longer conversation than normal, simply because we had so much ground to cover, so I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us.
1: Hi Tristan. how are you? I'm very well, Ken. How are you?
0: I'm good, thanks. And thanks for taking the time to talk to me on the Comfortable Spot podcast. Uh, My podcast is about people that I admire or are following maybe on social media, but uh, yours is a little bit different because I came across you on your brilliant podcast, The Ancients. And uh, again, I'm a huge history buff. Oh God, I can't. I (laughs) I don't think I can quantify just how much interest I have in history. It's just something that fascinates me all the time. But what I did find was that when I was looking on for podcasts on ancient history, I kept getting American podcasts. And the thing is, they just can't get it right when it comes to podcasting about ancient history. I don't know what it is. I'm not sure whether it's their background or their culture or whatever, but they just seem to lack the magic. And when I came across your podcast um, as part of History Hit, which we'll talk about later on, what struck me brilliant about your podcast was that the passion is there. It's just amazing. So congratulations on that.
1: Well, thank you very much. Um, And Um, uh, Yeah, I'll say like the, the ancient history community of podcasts, it's, it is actually one, it was always wonderful to see that, you know, wherever they are based in the world, there is always this, you know, there are those podcasts out there and quite right too, because ancient history, you know, this covers thousands of years of human history. And it is so extraordinary in so many different ways that I'm sure we'll get into as this podcast goes on.
0: That's the thing I think modern people fail to grasp. Is that when you scale it, when you put it on a wall, and I did this with my nine-year-old daughter, there's so much more time before what we would consider modern time. And I think when people start to grasp that, then they begin to grasp the whole complexity of it and that it wasn't just swords and sorcery and whatever.
1: Well, I know you, I think you're absolutely right on on those points there. And, and maybe in one way, you know, it's not just Greece and Rome, as fascinating as both of those two ancient cultures are, and I love talking about them. But as you say, it's a huge time scale. And I think it's combined with the huge geographic area. We're talking about the ancient world so you and one of the great pleasures of the whole podcast is you know that one week you'll be talking about indigenous australia we're looking at what the archaeology is telling us about that but combining that with indigenous worldviews and then their belief that they've been there you know forever and then another week you'll be talking about um The Nazca lines or ancient north america or of course then rome or greece or the phoenicians or whatever and the great thing is you said you're covering cultures and civilizations that sometimes are thousands of years apart thousands and thousands of miles apart but then at the same time there are sometimes these wonderful occasions where you can actually see really interesting similarities between these two ancient cultures that have no connection to each other but somehow maybe that this overarching idea that you know we're all homo sapiens, they're, they're these similar overarching ideas between them.
0: Your passion is so uh, you can it's it's actually almost visual in your podcast. And I wanted to start with that. I mean, what piqued your interest in history and particularly in ancient history?
1: Well, <laughs> my mum was always want me to say here, and, and she's right, because sometimes I overlook this part, but really early when they know early years, um, must have been four or five, one of the books which I was always obsessed with was this. Atticus's Greek myths like a hundred Greek myths a children's book but it was so engaging in like the telling of these these stories from ancient Greece from Odysseus to Hercules to Ariadne and so on and that really gripped me really stuck really right at the start. But actually, as a classic boy growing up in the early two thousands, one of the things which really piqued the interest and my um, a background to me, my main love, I'd, I'd guess if I had to say for ancient history, is ancient military history. I've always loved that side of it: uh, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, phalanxes, all of that. And but one thing which really kicked my interest in that was you know growing up in the early two thousands and the game, the Famous immortal game that is Rome Total War and (laughs) just playing too many hours, you know, in my um, growing up, just playing that game hour after hour after hour, various Roman factions, the Greek states and all of that. And it was just it it just really encapsulated my interest in that period. And, you know, I think there was definitely one stage where I could literally tell you the descriptions of every single unit. Uh, I was obsessed And I think from that, you know, there was that love of ancient history. Then you do a bit more into the research. You look up figures like for me, it was always like looking up figures like Pyrrhus and then delving into that a bit more. Combined with the fact that on the wider history front, I was lucky enough at uh, primary school and then secondary school to have history teachers who are really engaged in the subject themselves. And I think that's so key for someone getting interest in history when growing up, having those people there who share that interest, who can convey that passion. And then um, taking that on to university first alongside archaeology. I love the archaeology side of things, but in the early years of university, I got a bit bored. I'm sorry to say, with the the science stuff behind that and learning about all those scientific methods for archaeology today, I look back on that and think, actually, that's so cool. But basically, that made me then channel in towards ancient history as a degree. And, you know, that's kind of carried on into the job following university.
0: It's so funny you say um, about the game that you played because for me, it's uh, Age of Empires. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, we we have a symmetry there. I spend hours and hours on my old laptop. I wanted to talk about ancient history in popular culture. And for me, when I got involved in ancient history and I started to like it, a lot of it came from television, be it the, you know, the classic 1970s production of Jesus of Nazareth or the Harry Harryhausen films, you know, where those Jason and the Argonauts and those type of things. And I wanted to ask you about ancient history and cinema, good and bad, you know, um, with regards <laughs> to examples. And um, we obviously, we could do a whole podcast on that, but maybe I was thinking of a couple of top ones. When you see something like, say, Gladiator, how does that make you feel? What What, what impressions did you get from that movie?
1: Well, the thing is, I think with Gladiator, you know, for someone like me who just wants to kind of watch something, you know, engaging, fun, but you can see the ancient history aspect alongside it, but at the same time, I'm not one of those people who would sit down and say, oh no, you got that wrong, oh no, (laughs) you know, the amphitheatre in Lepsis Magna would not have looked like that or something like that. You're kind of there just to just to watch it to appreciate you know this link to ancient history and then kind of like if you want to learn more about that period in ancient history the age of commodus the age of marcus aurelius whether you can you know go onto youtube you can look at some videos which tell you the facts or you can read write articles read articles and so on i really just love you know the the action the entertainment um gladiator i think to this day is still one of my if not my favorite film of all times okay Uh, never any shock to anyone in the office when I say that they're just <laughs> like oh what a surprise there yeah um but I it was no I I think like Russell Crowe's gladiator is just one of those those sword and sandal epics of uh, immortalized of all time alongside like, in the 1960s Spartacus isn't it yeah and um, I was just
0: about to ask you about Spartacus so maybe yeah what what was your impressions on Spartacus looking back is- at it now
1: Thing is, Sparska. I've only watched it like through. Uh, this is one of my terrible uh, admittances here. I've only think I've watched it through like once or twice in full. Otherwise, it's been like snippets of uh, the battle scenes and so on. And it's so interesting comparing that, you know, Kirk Douglas with the likes of the more recent Sparska series, which kind of went down a different route, didn't it? Um, but no, I. I can't say too much about it because I don't know too much about (laughs) the movie itself. But one of the fortunate things on the podcast is actually that we can, alongside doing the the traditional ancient history topics is that we do once in a while, we cover like, you know, depictions, depictions, of ancient history on film in cinema and we had Dr Fiona Radford on over a year and a half ago uh, and she's done a lot of work behind like the production behind Spartacus and it was so interesting to hear you know the angles that they took how they were going to portray you know this love interest of Spartacus this what was the actual historical facts behind this uh this figure but what was also what was also going through their minds and their ideas of wanting obviously that Spartacus always had to have a love interest so was this fact was this fact, fiction i think the fig- the figures called virinia isn't it um and and it was just fascinating then looking at behind the scenes how the movie was created and fiona yes yeah, she is the number one for that but i mean i mean it is so interesting now looking at some of these you know ancient history blockbusters you see the ones that have stood the test of the test of time like gladiator like spartacus and then there are the other ones which 300 you know, for example yeah that 300 <laughs> like as, as as a bit of fun as entertainment like, no problem at all but you, you just have to draw a line saying okay but I guess that's okay if you want to know the real story of the Mopoli you know then go and have a look on uh, at a YouTube video or you know look at articles or whatever or go it? to history hit <laughs> Oh well, absolutely. I mean, and yeah, actually, we go through that in a second. Well, Ken, but that's one of the great things, isn't it? It's like you can use these these really popular um, uh, angles is the wrong word, but you know these popular perceptions of ancient history. But you can then create content, whether it's on the podcast, whether it's a video or whatever, and you can say, okay, what's the truth? What's the fiction? What's the fact? What's the fiction? And you can you can bring that ancient history to life so quickly in one day through all these technologies.
0: I think what they do is they spark an interest. So people kind of see it mm. in a pop culture way and they go, okay, I'm actually going to find out a little bit more about Leonidas. And then they go and find out that in real life, from what we know, the character was far more interesting than the movie mm. predicted. So I hope that's that, that brings people who are maybe of a younger, probably more, as I said, as we agreed, more of a punk rock culture who look at this and go, okay, these guys were badass <laughs> you know in normal terms they were badass well wereder depicted in the movie is, is slightly an exaggeration but it wasn't far from the truth in terms of their sheer courage and their sheer you know tenacity
1: absolutely and I think that curiosity factor is so key actually you know like because of films like 300 Spartans is one of the most iconic words of ancient history so that in effect, Whenever we do a podcast about Spartans, or if we do a video about Spartans, you almost know that, that that topic is going to be popular. And then if you do something like the truth about Spartan society, and you get one of the leading you know, academics who's dedicated tens of years sometimes you know, to that topic, to learning what do we actually know, it's so rewarding because you can see that the interest is there. The curiosity has been gained from watching something like 300 and then you have the platform to then you know show to the people okay what have they based that on what's truth what's fiction and so on uh, we
0: think we we'll have finished this topic on one theme of a movie that has uh, probably got a lot to do with yourself I'm sure you're keen interest <laughs> in it and yes. uh, that was Alexander the Great because of course we'll talk about it shortly is that you have a book um, in relation to Alexander the Great but I wanted to ask you about that film because I mean originally when that movie came out it was beset with problems it had issues about uh, storylines it had issues about how they depicted the people particularly mm. I remember the accents was a big issue <laughs> uh, and obviously some overacting and so on but given the fact that we're nearly looking at a 20 year gap now it's 20 years since that movie's come out can you go back to that movie and say okay I'm going to look at it in a different way
1: well uh, uh, let's talk about the accents first of all yeah. because it's, it's the Irish accents isn't it it With is Colin yes Powell of course. And, the, yeah. and the Macedonian generals like Parmeni on this yeah. idea that they all classic
0: well-known Irish actors who were I'm taken so, uh, from from you know local theatres here in Ireland who are very good <laughs> classical actors believe me
1: <laughs> um, yes but I mean on one sense, when you kind of look at the picture, it was it was so interesting why they decided to do that. And correct me if you think um, if you think I'm going up the wrong tree, but from my understanding, and actually it's quite interesting when you look at the sources surrounding this following Alexander's death, because there's one particular remark which seems to highlight this too. It's this idea that you know the Macedonian dialect of Greek was much rougher might be the wrong word but for those greeks based further south in city states such as athens such as corinth and thebes and la- the accent the dialect of their macedonian neighbors further north was a bit yeah, it was a bit more difficult for them to understand. It was the same language, but the accent of it was slightly different. And I guess a, a modern parallel, which I sometimes use today, is to say I'm talking, I'm someone from the West Sussex, from the home counties in England, and then you will someone up there is, is someone from Glasgow, or someone who like, and it might be more difficult for us to understand. Um, but, but they're still speaking exactly the same language. It's just a slightly different dialect. Now, there's a huge new problem around that today because there's this whole debate of, did the Macedonians speak Greek or not? Oh, yes, they did speak Greek. Their dialect was just slightly different. So I'm guessing the angle that they went down with the Alexander film was to try and portray um, these Macedonians as speaking, you know, English, yeah. but not the English you'd normally associate, you know, someone from England, someone from Ireland, uh, f- from Ireland, in that case, um, so I can I can completely understand. Like now, looking back at it, you know, and the fact that we know from the sources that the Macedonian dialect was different to that from like Athens or Thebes or Corinth, why it was done, but it is still for a first time person watching it, especially when I watched the first time, it was a little confusing to uh, to definitely yeah. get your head around.
0: And in terms of say the actual the storyline, when you look back on the storyline now, do you kind of go, yet yeah, there are some parts of that film where they really nail it.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going back to the military history straight mm-hmm, away mm-hmm. here, Ken, and, yep. and um, uh, the battle scene right at the start, the Battle of Gaugamela. Now they had fantastic, you know, historical advice. I think one of the main ones, Robin Lane Fox on that, who's still written one of the uh, great books on Alexander the Great. Um, and you look... At how they recreated that battle with a look look at the Macedonian phalanx battalions, for instance, how they were arranged. You look how the battle progresses with Alexander Mar- and his cavalry heading out to the right, the Persians opposite them, the cavalry opposite them, tracking them as well. Darius telling one of his commanders, you know, envelop, envelop them, mm-hmm. so envelop those cavalry going out to the right, Bessus before it's too late. And you know, that's, that's what we hear from the sources. It's very difficult to get an overall picture of Galgamela because all the sources very quickly focus in on Alexander himself, as they always do. But it, it seems very much that, you know, you have the both sides going out to the right, Alexander going out to the right, the Persians going out to the left to counter him. The Persians then trying to get around Alexander, this whole idea of enveloping him, this whole part of the Persian plan. And then, you, you know, it was it was really really well done because you could see that they'd done their homework there's always going to be small things that you know that you could say oh hang on not exactly sure about that um but at the same time there was so much that they you know that they orchestrated so well with the telling of the battle the equipment the equipment of the persians and how they're portrayed is a bit not too sure about that but it's it's not um that's just one point but compared to the overall picture where you have such things like parmenion and his left wing struggling against a huge persian force opposite them because they are being they're being outflanked they're in trouble they need help from alexander the sending of people to alexander to to come back and help him win his part of the line you know we have that in certain sources too so, yes, I think you know the battle scene at the at the beginning. I think we even did this in a tutorial when I was at Edinburgh University. We reviewed Alexander, and, like focusing on the battle scene first of all, because you could just tell that you know it was it was so well done. And when you look at the sources that talk through the battle, you can see you can see the influences there in the dozens. So it's
0: well worth a review. Take a look at it again and with an open mind
1: yes yes absolutely and it's it's a it's a lovely basis for the film where you have so many other bits as well and we've talked about this i talked about this in the previous podcast when alexander enters babylon with his army yes and you know like it we're told in quintus Curtius rufus how he's greeted by you know crowds of cheering people they're throwing garlands and flowers and into the way as he marches in with his army in full military order he's then greeted by these prominent persian commanders in Babylon they bring him gifts wild animals in cages and all of this stuff you very get this that sense once again is very much conveyed uh, in the movie so Scenes like that, scenes like the whole battle scene at the start, as an ancient history buff like myself, I can watch that over and over and over again and absolutely love it. I
0: think I've done a few times watching that just that one particular scene um, in on YouTube because it really gives you an impression of just how magnificent Babylon had the potential to be. But I think the other thing, maybe Tristan, that was probably wrong with that um, was the timing of that movie, that it probably came out and it competed with a lot of other movies that were very similar. Including even the Lord of the Rings, because, you know, for an average person, you could pique your
1: interest in both of those things. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good point. I'd never really thought of it that way. It was 2004 it was released, wasn't it?
0: That was the peak of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, there was. And yeah, you know, you know, when you look at it visually, the visuals are very similar in terms of sword and sorcery.
1: Well, it was, wasn't it? I think one of the other things, though, the issue with Alexander was it does get a bit boring at times. Oh, I agree. I say yeah. that. I yes. say that, yeah. I, you know, as as I love that Alexander the Great period and his successes. But, you but you know, you start with this amazing battle mm. scene, the Battle of Galgamela, But then for so much to the rest of the movie, sometimes it's just kind of talk yes. and yeah. moving around the place. And there's a conspiracy once in a while and then dealing with that quickly. And then I think you get the Hydaspes a bit later on. But... It's very long, Uh, this lack of action for such long periods of the film, I think kind of hindered the, you know, uh, how, how well received, how popular this movie could have been. But at the same time, you look at the figure of Alexander the Great, one of the most famous figures in world history, and you've got to... I mean, kudos to Oliver Stone, the director, for even taking this on, you know, as an epic movie. Because there are so many stories surrounding Alexander, so many, so many stories that are evidently fictional, but, it, but then it's trying to figure out, you know, what could be the, the truth behind them. And then trying to distill those stories into the narrative of Alexander the Great in an epic movie, like, it's, it's an incredibly diff, difficult, difficult task.
0: I think uh, Colin Farrell would be very happy to hear us talking. (laughs) (laughs) You'll <laughs> <laughs> get them on the Ancients podcast. I one think day. you should. I think Russell that's Crow. what you should do. I think we should. You should definitely do a podcast and and do some special on the the movie itself because it really warrants that. And if you can get somebody like a, a couple of our well, the, you know, I can put you in a few names with a few Irish actors and put them on. I'm sure they'd be very happy to talk about that. Yeah.
1: Should we talk actually quickly? quickly um, should we mention Angelina Jolie as oh, Olympias yeah. as yeah. well? You yeah. know, yeah. one other thing. We'd love like, love to get Angelina on one day, but I think we chatted to some time ago. Go to Elizabeth Carney. Mm-hmm. Now, Elizabeth, uh, she's wonderful. Of all of these scholars who focus on um, Alexander the Great, the family of Alexander the Great, she's done a lot of work around the women surrounding Alexander the Great, for his mother, his sister, uh, and so on, his grandmother as well. And it was interesting because she was apparently uh, when that film was released, it was they got Elizabeth on to talk about you know the portrayal of Olympias in the Alexander movie. And you know, this association you see in the movie with Angelina Jolie with snakes is one that comes in, mm. the, in the later sources. I think it's Plutarch may well be one of those, but it's this portrayal as Angelina Jolie. She was half, um, well, no, she was Molossian. So she was from a region. She wasn't from Macedonia. So she had this, this non-Macedonian background and it's kind of very much conveyed in the sources. Olympias hasn't had a good rep over the years. So it was interesting Wrongly as well because of our sources, but it is interesting to see how she was also portray- also portrayed. So sorry for that. No,
0: I think I mean we're just thinking it would be a good idea for a movie. I mean, you know, just to to, to standalone film. Um, you know, there's with Netflix making all kinds of movies. Anything is possible nowadays, and certainly Absolutely. I think that would be great in terms of, as you say, looking to maybe readdress the myth about her as a woman and how it's portrayed in a man's world. Um, mm. with regards to ancient history, um, and in the modern world, I, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions on this when we talk about history and people learning from history nowadays it seems to be reaching maybe back towards you know the first world war and people saying you know this is what we need to learn because obviously there's still a lot of similarities in society and culture so when people talk about learning from from history they say oh we need to learn from the second world war we can't have those same mistakes that we've made but I always, always wonder about ancient history. and Is there anything that we can learn from ancient history in terms of how we can progress with our society? Did we lose anything?
1: Well, it's so so interesting, isn't it? Because you see, I think one of the most popular ancient history books that's bought today, um, alongside Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars and his Civil War, you've got the Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. You know, mm-hmm. this Stoic guide. This, you know, Marcus Aurelius, this emperor, was living during this torrid time with the uh, the Antonine Plague and all of that, and you know, trying to you know, maintaining mental well being, mental health during that uh, horrific period in times. So, and it's interesting how many people buy his. Med- meditations, you know, this, 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 you know, trying to learn from these pe- people living 2,000 years ago. Um, it is a really good question as well. And I actually had to think about this one for some time when you sent this question over. I think what is interesting about it is what I think we can learn so many things is because so many things around us today that we might not think of, well, that sometimes things that we take for granted, you have these ancient origins of. If we talk about big things, first of all, like the city of London, where I'm now, you know, the city of London is here because of the Romans. The Romans founded really the settlements here. There was Iron Age farmsteads as well. There was one in Southwark. There might have been one north of the river too before it, but there wasn't really you know a prime settlement at London until the Romans in the 40s AD. So it's amazing to think you know that it all began with a Roman foundation and London really grew from there. But I think one of the other things that that is really interesting to learn from the ancient world for, for, for modern day are the many other things that we take for granted today. Like Um, The clothes that we wear on our body, the more mundane things that we might not immediately think of, but we did a podcast not too long ago about spinning in the ancient world and weaving, you know, and the importance of these, uh, you know, these things to societies before the Industrial Revolution, you know, creating your clothes and how, how it all came about, what materials you'd use, you know, how important this was for daily life for most people in societies. Um, and also y- the ubiquitous nature of things like that, you know, they're not talked about, but we have we have uh, spindle whorls, we have spindles, we have artifacts relating to spinning in ancient history from various different cultures across the whole world. So it's just one of these things which makes you realise these aspects of our history that we now are very fortunate, very grateful we can take for granted today because we're living in a post-industrial revolution world. Um, I think that's one of the other things that you want to highlight with ancient history, which is the extraordinary nature of so many parts of it. You You talk about ancient history and the writings that survive, and large swathes of it are dominated by narratives on warfare, on campaigns, sometimes on diseases, on pestilence, um, we have, for instance, like little things surviving from frontier garrisons, like Vindolanda, Vindolanda tablets, talking about eye infections all the time. And so, when you think of we're living in today's world, then yes, everything's not perfect; everything's far from perfect. But the gratitude that you start having that we live in today's world, rather than living two thousand years ago, where you know you didn't have. Dentistry, like I do today, you know, eye infections back then were huge deals. Uh, I know they are today, but but you know, you didn't have the medicine um, available then as you do today. You know, this this constant threat of sometimes in some communities of, of raiding, um, of warfare, of pillaging, of disease. There was no vaccines and all of that. So there's so many aspects of the ancient world that are so extraordinary. And then you go into things like sacrifices or this idea that the ancient romans for entertainment they sometimes went to an arena to a building and watched people be executed watched prisoners be executed and they thought that that was entertainment so sometimes the extraordinary aspects of the ancient world these parts that we're so you know that are so horrific to us today it's sometimes good to highlight those i think so that you can show people today you know how lucky we are in many respects to live in the world we live in today compared to that 2000 years ago. But I guess one other thing, Ken, on that is one lovely thing of ancient history is how certain things are actually really relatable to modern day. You have these little snippets of information, You know, there's lots of mysteries surrounding the ancient world, but you have these little snippets of information that come to the fore once in a while, which really are relatable to you today, which really hammer home that yes, these people were different as we've highlighted before, but in many other ways, They were similar to us. They were human beings living thousands of years ago. But we have things like the Vendorlander tablets. We have these amazing little excerpts into... Uh, into daily life thousands of years ago we have excerpts of people worrying about a, a birthday party coming up we have fragments of papyri from places in egypt with with which we ancient rubbish dumps but preserved in those rubbish dumps a little bits of papyri which tell us things about ancient cookbook manuals and you know what they what they ate we have little bits of fragments about you know ancient greeks and how they what they use their dogs for you know what purposes you know their love for their dogs as well we get various insights into, you know, them giving dogs these names, these dogs became part of their families. And for instance, like in Pompeii recently, there was that archaeological discovery last year, wasn't there, where you have this fast food I put in quotation marks you know <laughs> fast food um stool discovered which had all the depictions of the various foods on offer which you can also it's incredibly relatable to modern day so i yes i do appreciate the more modern history there are lessons you know to be learned so that we don't go down the same uh, tracks again for instance there's lots of talk of munich at the moment with the ukraine russia Um, escalations and, of course, the release of the new Netflix film Munich, which is brilliant, by the way. But, you know, there are still lessons that you can learn uh, from ancient history, which is wonderful. All all these guides, there's recently a new series of books has come out, like looking at ancient thinkers such as Plato uh, and so on, excerpts from that, you know, ancient guides to creative thinking ancient guides off to how to live off the land, how to farm, how to live a good life in the countryside, ancient guides to innovation, but technologies and all of that stuff. It's even though some of these things are difficult to relate to today because they were so far away in the, in the past, to this day, you know, ancient history is one of the most engaging interesting aspects of our whole history. And I think it's reflected in, you know, the amount of interest ancient history episodes already get. Because there is that element of these people are different, but there are similarities as well. And because we can kind of grip onto those to teach people more about what life was like in the ancient world, what we can adhere to, but also what we can strive to avoid um, in years to come.
0: There's also the basis of art You know, art in the modern sense, it goes all the way back to that time. Not just Greek art, but it's so much different It's Drusian art, it's Celtic art. And, you know, today people are so influenced by that, aren't they? They're not influenced by, you know, so much by modern art. I think the vast majority of people are, are interested by ancient art.
1: Well, and this is one of the, the other really great things about it, Ken, you know, art and theatre as mm. well, you know, yeah. all of that stuff, you know. It's a, the basic principle of the theatre is still
0: it, today is exactly the same as what they had 3,000 years ago in, in, in
1: Greece music dancing yeah, yeah all of that stuff yeah absolutely absolutely i was at a dance event last night and i actually said this to one of the people you know this is dancing is one of those things that has been there throughout history it, deep into ancient history you know it was the heart of the communities as well you know with music and all of the performances whether you're an indigenous australian and you're performing the song lines you know the Indigenous Australian creation story or you said you're in ancient Greece or, or, or wherever. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. But your thing about art is really interesting and I think it's really reflected. We talked about that Pompeii discovery, the visual aspect of that. But you sometimes see, don't you, when there's a new ancient history discovery um, in the news it will always go near the top of the BBC. Absolutely, you know, it, yeah. it will always be one of the most featured articles on the homepage for the next few days, and one of the most clicked ones, because whether it's you know the discovery of forty-five thousand-year-old cave art in Sulawesi, Indonesia, and then you have a picture of this amazing, you know, colourful depiction of a wild, it's a wild pig of Sulawesi, forty-five years old that they painted on the side of this cave or it's the fact you know you know the discovery of an of a deer depiction in Kilmartin Glen in Scotland's last year you know Scotland's oldest known prehistoric carving of an animal, and then you have that depiction there, you know, as a featured image of an article. People are fascinated by it. You know, these are people, Homo sapiens, modern humans, living like us thousands of years ago, and they're creating art like that, which has survived to this day. And it's that you know that that huge amount of time which has passed, and the fact, Ken, that we are making discoveries to this day, and that we will continue to make new discoveries in the weeks, in the months, in the years ahead. Some amazing discoveries which will shine more light on ancient history, you know, discoveries that have been hidden from sight for thousands of years. And that's one of the most exciting things of all, I think, is that Thanks to our modern world, thanks to scientific developments and so on, you know, we are we have the resources, the the technology available to make some absolutely incredible new ancient discoveries. I mean, my mind instantly goes to something like shipwrecks in the Black Sea, you know, which we're now being able to find much more and more and more about. And imagine the amount of wealth of material of information we're going to be learning from future archaeological excavations in the mediterranean off the shoreline you know finding these shipwrecks finding these artifacts or whether we're at hadrian's wall or you know at a fort or you know hs2 you know hs2 in england this new high-speed rail connecting london with birmingham the amount of Archaeology, Roman archaeology, and so on—that has been discovered in the in the you know before HS two can be laid down. You know they have to do the archaeological work first—is absolutely incredible, and I think that Ken is what's so exciting for the future of ancient history, and I think it's one thing which really is important for us today and really gets the interest going is that, you know, ancient history isn't dead. Ancient history is alive and kicking and will continue to be alive and kicking as we make more and more amazing new discoveries.
0: Yeah, I think it's there because it's visceral. You know, it's a part of us. It's not something that we can just look at from an astra- abstract point of view. It's actually in us.
1: That relatable, that relatable aspect to it too. You know, this was something that someone made X thousand years ago.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and my, when my kids look at stuff like, Um, say ancient history and they go by really back to the cave paintings they kind of say did children do that and i say well maybe they did yeah and they that that gives them such a huge boost you know they go wow you know five thousand years ago there were children doing what we do today you know getting paint putting it on their hands and putting it on a wall
1: well i think i think that's the one other thing isn't it you know with these new discoveries or you know going to these places is your your amazed uh, by the visuals that you're presented with. But for what you said right there, it are, it opens up all these other questions which you want to know the answers for. And sometimes we don't know the answers as of yet, you know, regarding them, but it makes you want to learn more. It gets you so interested, so engaged in it. And that sends you down the whole rabbit hole of wanting to learn more about Indeed, these
0: people, yes. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I also, speaking of speaking of rabbit holes, now we have to go into a very important rabbit hole and the idea behind your book. Uh, <laughs> so can we talk about that? What was the idea behind the book? Now we, we've already addressed who Alexander the Great was, so there's no point in need to go into too much detail. <laughs> You're going to write a book on Alexander the Great. You're going to find something about him and focus on him while he was alive. But you did the clever thing. You looked at the scraps and the fights and the you know the disagreements and the quest for power. Almost like ten minutes after he kicked the bucket. So I'm well, I'm interested in this. What was the idea behind that? Why did you go down that road?
1: Well, I think you're right to point that out. I mean, the how quickly the chaos descends following Alexander the Great's death is remarkable. I think it's barely, I'd I say, you know, barely forty hours following his death. You know, there's a skirmish in the room in which he dies between two factions that emerge in Babylon following Alexander's death and the story is preserved in uh, Quintus Curtius Rufus. Um, I think for me, what really got me interested in it is because there's so many, you know, there's these golden ages in ancient history, you know, classical Athens, the Persian Wars before that. Then you have Alexander the Great, his conquest of the Persian Empire. And then you get the rise of Rome, you know, the Roman Carthaginian, the Punic Wars, which really erupt about, you know, between 75, 100 years after Alexander the Great's death in the late fourth century. So we have that hindsight in the fact that we know Alexander the Great, he conquers this huge superpower, this huge empire that stretched from the eastern Mediterranean all the way to the Indian subcontinent. Then he dies. And we then know that 100, 200 years later, Rome is the new dominant power in the Mediterranean. So we have that hindsight there. And Alexander the Great, you know, he's one of the most famous figures in world history. But You know, things didn't stop with when he died. What was really interesting to me is, you know, well, what happened next? What happened when he died? What followed, what ultimately led to Rome becoming so dominant in the Mediterranean? But, you know, what's in in between that? What links the death of Alexander the Great with the rise of Rome in the Eastern Mediterranean, with Rome becoming dominant over those Hellenistic superpowers in the Eastern Mediterranean, like the Ptolemaic Kingdom, the Seleucid Empire, and so on? And then you go into things, well, how did the Seleucid Empire, how did the Ptolemaic Kingdom, how did those things emerge? And it's just an amazing part of Alexander's story because yes, his life is really interesting, but what follows his death is even more interesting because he's forged this large empire. And it's so extraordinary to see how quickly it descends into chaos following his death because you have all of these figures at the time of Alexander the Great's death in Babylon, who are almost like mini-Alexanders. These are generals of Alexander the Great, the likes of Perdiccas, Ptolemy, Python, Lysimachus, Leonatus. You have further west, the legendary military general Craterus, one of the most famous generals in Alexander's entourage. You have an elderly viceroy, Antipater, back in Macedonia too. He'll be important. But all of these figures are like mini-Alexanders in the way that They embodied Alexander's charisma, his confidence, his style of leadership on the battlefield. Alexander, as shown in the 2004 film, you know, he's leading from the front all the time in his battles. But so were these generals. They were either alongside Alexander in his personal royal guard, or they were leading particular parts of the line elsewhere on the line. Alexander depended on their their capabilities, Their abilities as leaders of their own parts in the line, so that he could rely on them as he focused in on delivering the hammer blow at other ends of the line during a particular battle. And this is where the likes, you know, Perdiccas—he's leading his particular battalion at the Battle of Galgamela. That's one of the really interesting little clips from um, the Galgamela battle scene um, during the uh, in the 2004 film. One or two frames show Perdiccas. Leading his Macedonian battalion, fighting in the front ranks of his Macedonian battalion in the center of his line. That's where we know he was. That's where the ancient sources say he was. So they get that absolutely right to a T. But what this all means is that when Alexander dies, Alexander's charisma, his overarching charisma, has put these generals in their place. They were happy to, you know, be subordinates to King Alexander because his charismatic aura would just overshadow them all. But when Alexander dies, these former generals, they are less willing to serve under one of their former comrades in arms, who they see as equal, or they may not even see themselves as being better than the rest of them. And so this leads into chaos very quickly. You have Perdiccas and Ptolemy, you know, two former brothers in arms, but they quickly descend to become the most hostile of enemies following Alexander's death as they they both strive for prominence positions in this new world order and in many ways from what they saw it in the known world that they knew of this was the new world order you know what is now going to happen now alexander's died who is going to get what who is going to be his successor you know it's some people have described it and one review described it as you know it's ancient game of thrones beats um, lord of the rings but it's nonfiction. and i know so many people um so many historians use try to promote their period of, of of history as being, you know, this is the real life Game of Thrones. But with, with what follows Alexander's death, the chaos, the turmoil, the larger than life characters involved, you've got warrior princesses, you've got these generals, um, you've got you've got armies, sometimes more than 50,000 men, you've got clashes, which might be more than 100,000 men in total. You've got battles going from um, central Greece uh, in the Aegean, you've got clashes there, but at the same time, you've got another clash between a Macedonian and a Hellenic army um, in the east of his empire, in modern-day Afghanistan. It's crazy. It, yeah. It, that's, it, it is absolutely crazy. It's baffling it when you felt, think about it now. I mean, it is absolutely baffling, isn't it? And it was just like, the story of Alexander's great, but I, I, there was an opportunity there to do a book, you know, dedicated to... We don't have many sources of it, so, you know, there's a lot of... You know, sometimes you have to do as much research as you can to try and piece it all together. And that's perhaps one of the things which puts quite a lot of people off. But it was definitely an opportunity to say, right, Alexander, remarkable figure, infamous figure, dies age 32, you probably know that story, but do you know what happens next? Because what happens next is even more insane.
0: Yeah, it's great, and actually, I have it on order. I can't wait to get it, and I'm going to push my kids into the room, tell them to turn on their PC for the next two days, and read it. You know, they can they can watch as much Netflix as they want because I'm really looking forward to reading it. Uh, it's it, even the cover excites me. I mean, you have this fantastic cover where you have two soldiers uh, looking very similar but different colors, and that's the uh, that's the key to it. You can it gives the image straight away. It's called the Perdicus Years. Three, two, three, two. 320 BC, yeah.
1: Yes, it is, and interesting that that um, design is based on the sources that we have. Uh, a vivid duel mm. that we're, just, we're told occurs in 320 between two particular generals, a guy called Eumenes and a guy called Neoptolemus, uh, and they were the most hated. Of enemies, we're yeah. told. It's a fantastic saw, image, yeah. You have yeah, the leopard
0: skin on the doors, and it shows like you've got the uh, you've got the civilization, but you've also got the brutality and the aggressiveness. It's it, mm. it just it's a great it's a great picture to entice somebody to pick a book up. Because do you know what it is? It's just like what I what you just said there. People wouldn't be sure whether this is a novel or whether it's a fact book, and you've got them in. And that's what I like that cover. You know, it, it's not, it doesn't have it, because you know yourself what can put people off if you have, say, a depiction or a photograph of an ancient image or an ancient piece of archaeology or an artefact. That can put people off. But when you have your image, people are going, okay, that looks like a novel. I'll pick it up. They read the blurb. and They go, oh, actually, it's even better than a novel. So I think you did pretty, I think it was a pretty good idea to go with that sort of image.
1: Well, uh, you're very kind. You're very kind indeed. And then if I must... I must credit um, Johnny Shoemate, uh, the artist who made that. He is an absolutely brilliant artist. No, That's brilliant.
0: History. It's really, really good. Come here, tell me about History Hit, because I, I love History Hit. It's brilliant. Um, signed up for it recently, and it's just so good. Because, you know, when you look at, say, History TV on on like as part of the Discovery Network, it's okay. They do fine. But you guys really, you know, you pick the niche ones that we all love. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about history? How did it start? I know Dan Snow is involved and how did it get together and, and what was the the idea of it and how are you getting on now?
1: <laughs> yes, well, you know, it is, is, as you said right there, it's the brainchild of Dan Snow mm. um, several years ago. And, you know, it starts off with a few of us in an office near Southwark, well, in, in Southwark, um, you know, starting this. A bit of background to history hits. One of the main things is we have this SFOD channel. So it's kind of like Netflix. It's like Netflix for history is the old tagline we used to use. Um that you know, you subscribe for X99 a month uh, or X99 a year, and then you get access to all of these documentaries. But we're also a production company, so we create a lot of our own content too, and we add new content each week. So so what you know, when people
0: sign up for this, the money's going into the production, it's constantly moving along, it's not just repeats.
1: It's a many-headed beast, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's risen over the past few years. We've gone, you know, from a small startup in Southwark into, you know, a, a, a proper functioning, uh, you know, business, you know, we have multiple heads. It's like a Hydra, really, Ken, all <laughs> these different different angles that we've got. You know, we've got various podcasts. The Ancients is one of those. We've got Dan Snow's. We've got Gone Medieval, not just the Tudors, Warfare, and, and others coming now too. You know, we've got the TV channel. Uh, we've got articles. We've got an editorial team. We've got the marketing team. And it's it's really lovely as well because it's you have all one of the key things to success, Ken, is you've got people at this company who are just, you know, obsessed with history, who are keen to talk about history, who are keen to produce historical documentaries, but are also so keen to make sure that what we produce is correct. You know, you do the research, you do the research as to who are the best people to come on and talk about the topic. You look, you choose the locations. If you can't go to a particular location, you're thinking, okay, how can we tell this story without featuring this location, but still get, you know, that real engagement in, in the story that we really want to tell. And I think what is so lovely there is because everyone's so, you know, keen to want to make it grow, to get these stories out there in history, everyone loves this history, is that whenever you have a meeting, whether it's a TV meeting, or it's an Ancients podcast meeting that we have once every couple of weeks, you know, people are full of ideas. They say, have you, have you thought about this for a podcast episode? Have you thought about this for a TV? Or I'd like to pitch this idea for TV. Uh, I think we can do X. We can go to XYZ. We go to Neolithic Orkney. We can talk about Orkney as this centre of Neolithic Britain thousands of years ago and how that really changes our perception you know, of this, this group of islands on what is now the edges of the British Isles. But, but yeah, no, it's absolutely wonderful to, to, to on one sense, uh, be surrounded by a team of people where you can put forward ideas and you haven't got any, you haven't got, it's not, shame might be the wrong word, mm-hmm. but you're not afraid to put forward ideas. We'll always listen. If you think it's a terrible idea, we'll say it's a terrible idea, but that's fine mm-hmm. because you, the floor is open to you. And, and I think one of the great things about podcasts, of all the things with our podcasts, is that because we're producing them regularly, because like we're you know always looking to grow it and to get it to more and more people, that the ideas that are created during these meetings are just so some of them are absolutely balmy, but they're brilliant. <laughs> like talking to you today, you know, you mentioned, you know, talking about the, you know these films, these epic ancient history films. I mean, that's a great idea for potential podcasts in the future. That's such another angle we can go down. We could Talk about dinosaurs, you know, all this kind of stuff, which is just, it's amazing. But if you want to go back to the TV stuff quickly, um, like, like, it's going from strength to strength in that field. We're getting more and more people in the TV team. Uh, we're getting more ambitious in the projects that we're going on. We even did something recently where we did a kind of like a news news report slash, yes, slash quick. Yeah, you have seen
0: that. The quality of production is super. And that I have to commend you on that. Because sometimes people in a rush to make content, the king, which is, which is a you know, fair point, they lack a little bit in the production. But your production nails it. And I think that's something that definitely if anybody is kind of worried about that, it's going to be like a student type, uh, you know, production. No, that's not the case. It's really good quality. And I have to commend you on the team behind the camera that are doing such a good job. Uh,
1: They absolutely do. And it is so wonderful to see that whole process go from start to finish from, you know, the starting of an idea to getting the location sorted, to getting to an editor and then to getting the final piece out. Um, It is it is wonderful. But, you know, uh, the brainchild of Dan Snow, he saw this, you know, yeah, this, this gap in the market, as it were, for, you know, we want we want proper history documentaries. And there's the opportunity to do that now. But Listen, it, it, pick, it, people
0: it, are sick of listening of ancient aliens and Nazis, you know what I mean? Like, oh,
1: yeah. You know,
0: we're not going to name any radio, I'm not going to name any production companies. Look, I mean, for sure, there is a lot of about British history, but you're a British, you know, company. I mean, that's fairly understandable. But I think the thing about it is that, you know, as you can see, the way you're, uh, the organization is going along just like what you're saying there there's obviously more emphasis on what's happening outside because you know you need to get your audience in initially and that's fair enough but um now that you have you obviously have a fair few audience and it's i can see the pro- product products that you're bringing out they're much more uh, wide ranging and uh, i just think it can only get better because you know we really need these type of things even not just in history but we could probably do one in science as well and you know and so on even
1: well, one of the lovely things, you know, sometimes like can it be a, can it be something, you know, where you know it's created a path and we leave a trail, as you mentioned right there, you know, for other things to follow a similar suit, um, which would be absolutely lovely if 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 it happens, and no doubt I. I think it will happen no doubt if it hasn't happened already it may well I mean I remember going to I went to dancing a few weeks ago and I saw that there was like a special dancing subscription service but you know but that's for people who absolutely love watching competitive dancing and stuff okay. like that but <laughs> but no that thing is there you know what I mean I'm saying that these specialist channels for for these areas you know that 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 people love that that if there's good quality on that there there's an audience there that can serve it um but well there's an audience there who are who are begging for it who really wants it
0: yeah so let's talk about how they can get access to it so they go to um access.historyhit.com and then you can get a free trial isn't that right
1: access.historyhit.com yeah we're getting bigger we're getting better we're getting bolder and more ambitious and yeah, access.historyhit.com got things documentaries varying from the ancient uh, ancient period all the way to the modern day.
0: So, you start your free trial, 14 day free trial. That's what I did. Uh, so, I, I can say, I think it's where I am, I'm based in Ireland. So, it's around €5.99, Euro, um, 599 Euros a month, which, I mean, we got to think about this, guys out there. It's the price of a pint of beer in your rural country, never mind your city. Your city's going to cost you 10 points. So, a month, and you can sit down uh, when the kids are in bed and watch your history, uh, you know, your, get your history fix. And that's, that's the only way I can describe it. It's, it's, it's
1: brilliant. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that.
0: Oh, no, I appreciate it. And like, as I say, um, I, we, we, I'm a huge fan and it's, it's just your podcast brought me into it. Now I listen to Dan's history one. I'm, I'm following him on the endurance thing. Maybe, um, I can probably put some information on that. Probably we'd have to go into another podcast to talk about that, but, uh, The only thing I wanted to finish with, and um, I think this is kind of something that I ask all of my guests, uh, apart from your own book, obviously, because you've been indulged in that, did you get a chance to read or watch anything at the moment on, uh, you know, is there anything on TV or movies or that you're you're fascinated with at the moment?
1: Well... Uh, I think recently something which I just finished watching um, which I really did enjoy watching was the German series Barbarians uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, you know set around Arminius the Bastard Teutoburg Forest and I really really enjoyed that series that, that small series I think I think we watched it all in, in like two days right uh, and it's like six or seven episodes and each episode is about 45 minutes an hour long but they were so gripping they were so well told you also have the inclusion of like the famous Calcriza helmets mm-hmm. uh, discovered at the potential battlefield location that Arminius wears Um, it was just a really really uh, interesting you know retelling of the whole Teutoburg Forest story you have the Romans speaking Latin Um, I've
0: seen that actually online and it looks fascinating it was yeah you know what they've managed to do Tristan is that they have managed to in one scene show the complete difference in culture by the language the way that, you know, they come into the, v- the village and they're just all in this gold, you know, and they make this big proclamation to the people there. And it's just, you can just actually visually see it, which I've never really seen before in, in a lot of productions.
1: I think it was so well done and you have to like, contrast it with something like, let's say, you know, Gladiator, the mm, opening scene yeah. where you're portrayed. You, you very much get the Roman perspective of that opening battle, right? You know, with the, with the artillery, with the archers, with the soldiers. And I think one of the generals is like, people should know when they are conquered. Yes. And then you kind of have like these 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 uh, these um these Germans Marnie, I think you know one of them has like a severed head holding it up and like throwing it down and you kind of get this feeling that you're supposed to be rooting for the Romans yes. here. Um but then you get something like barbarians uh you know today where it's very much your you, you, you're well. As you say, that depiction there, like the Romans coming in, asking all of these things from the the local people, and you, you, you're rooting for the Germans in that case, aren't you? So, yes. so it's so interesting how you have that that contrast between two classic uh, Roman, well roman media roman media depictions
0: and the other thing i will say to people out there and i'm sure you'll agree with me 100 percent please 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 don't use dubbed versions if you get a chance to watch this program yes (laughs) (laughs) you've got to turn on the subtitles it will work for you trust me it will be much better you'll get used to it in a couple of seconds you know what about what about books at the moment um tristan did you get anything interesting out there that's catching your eye
1: yes yes um oh well I'm currently doing a second book at the moment, so oh, it's yes. currently doing a bit of research for that. But okay. alongside that, I'm currently reading Catherine Nixie's The Darkening Age, um, a little hint of what we might be doing uh, in the podcast very, very recently. But um, I started reading that. That's very interesting about, you know, this, this you know, Christians in the classical world. Um, I'm hoping to get my hands on Natalie, J- Natalie Haynes's Pandora's box. Uh, it was Pandora's jar, one of the two. Uh, it's, in the, it's in the post, basically, at the moment. I'm hoping to get in the next few days. Apart from that, no, not really reading anything else at the moment, it's quite a, because reading is such a big part of the day job prepping for podcasts, it's sometimes quite nice to um to, to do something completely different.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. I think we could have gone for another hour, to be honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I just want to quickly mention all the ways that people can get in touch with you. So we have The Ancients, which is on History Hit. And that you can just find out on any major podcast platform. That is, um, we've got like, I think you have almost 100 or something episodes now, ranging, as you said, from Alexander the Great to uh, the history of uh, Peloponnesian people. It's just an amazing, amazing array of podcasts. And you can really pick can choose and just spend hours going through the whole lot so congratulations on that and then of course you have your book as well which is the Perdicus years 323 to 320 pc and there's a forward there by dan snow as well isn't it and that book now is available isn't it or is it still in pre publication no right? it is
1: it is available great. hopefully that book should be arriving at yours very soon indeed super
0: stuff and we can also get it on e-publication and kindle i'm sure yeah
1: Yeah, absolutely can
0: great stuff so good to talk to you today tristan thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me
1: You too, Ken, and an absolute pleasure.
0: You've been listening to The Comfortable Spot. My name is Ken Sweeney, so take care of you all and have a good day.